I know what some of you are thinking. I was thinking the same thing as I was watching that. I wished I were sitting on a beach right now and that waves were washing in. So let's just imagine that as we stand together. Can we do that for the reading of God's word? We're in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if any of you are, if you are offering, sorry, if you are offering a gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you, will be th- you may be thrown into the prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. May God honor the reading of his word. You may be seated. Well, glad to see each one of you this morning, whether you're joining us online or you're in person We are moving into a message today, Jesus on anger. Last week it was Jesus on the Bible. It's kind of an incredible thought. Now Jesus on anger. And I just want to remind you before we even get started that Jesus calls us to live out of the motive of love, loving God, loving all people. John, one of the Jesus' disciples, and the one we believe wrote the fourth biography on Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, of the good news about Jesus he also wrote these three letters that are contained, and they're called epistles, but really they're letters at the, uh, towards, more towards your right of your Bible. If you look there, there are three small letters. And the incredible thing is inside of those letters, there's almost one central encouragement, love, love. Now, I want to remind you that John's probably the, one of the oldest disciples, maybe even the last one to die, We're not really sure, but I'm guessing that that's pretty close to the fact. And we know if we have any inkling of the history of Christians during this time period, we understand that they were under incredible persecution. In fact, uh, John probably saw more of his friends die than, I mean, friends die because of their love for Jesus, not natural death, not, you know, not cancer any other way, but persecution and actually death. And his word to us, In those epistles, and Jesus' word to us always is love, is love. Now, the incredible thing about Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 is he sets us up in this idea of righteousness, uh, this, this idea of redefining, or what I would really say is he's really defining what righteousness is. He's not redefining anything. He is really setting the story straight. For this is the words we see in six little stories that we're going to follow. Today's the first one. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and that of the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. We are reminded collectively and individually that Jesus' design and his desire 
for us is to live as love is the motive for all we do. It's not enough to do just the right thing. Well, that would be simple enough, and we'll find that out. But that we're called, as John demonstrates in these letters, we're called to live from the core of who we are. The heart and our mind and our soul is the wholeness of Jesus is to love, and we are to do the very same thing. I mean, this is what we're called to do. Now, how many of you are surprised by our angry culture that kind of seemingly erupted on us in this last year? How many of you are surprised by it? It seems to, in some cases, seems to kind of come out of nowhere or maybe everywhere. I don't know. I was looking up a, a few articles on this topic uh, of anger. Elizabeth Chang from the Washington Post says this, Americans are angry. The country erupted into the worst civil unrest in decades after the death of George Floyd. And anger about police violence and the country's legacy of racism is still running high. At the same time, we're dealing with anger provoked by the coronavirus pandemic. At public, uh, anger at public officials because they've shut down parts of our society. Anger because they're not doing enough, right? Anger about being required to wear a mask. I mean, it's all over the board. We're just angry people. The incredible thing is I began to look at those articles. The articles, some of them written in the States, but many of them are written outside in other nations, from other nations looking at our country. It is incredible. All over the world, they are uh, noting how... Uh, kind of, we have this course of anger that runs underneath us and through us. Some have even said far, be far before that. In fact, several of the articles just documented the fact that we're just angry, seething even before this moment, and I would tend to agree. Dora Mikor says this in Voice of America, if you, can't get, if you can get people to feel angry, that's a very useful political tool. If the balance is thrown to the side of going with this guttural feeling rather than your rational thoughts. So true, right? It, it, we, we, we have tended to kind of buy into this. If we can get people mad, we can get them moving. But for how long and for what purpose? It's incredible. While we may be able to use anger in politics, this is not the only form in which anger, anger is leveraged for motivating and manipulating people to do what we want them to do. My wife, Kathy, played volleyball in high school, and just a few weeks ago, we were in a conversation about sports. I don't remember what it was and even who was there, but she reminded uh, myself and a few others that were with us that she had a coach that was the language, uh, the volleyball coach when she was in high school, the language was abusive, there were violent outbursts, and even threats of excessive embarrassment to motivate her players to win. And I asked her, I, said, I, I couldn't remember if they had a winning team. And I was like, so did you guys win? No, we lost more than we won. It didn't work. And yet, we continue to grab for it. What Jesus continues to tell us is that love motivates. Love that is, lays down its life for another is truly catalytic in terms of changing the atmosphere in a room changing one's life, or changing even a community. And we're called into that. So if you have your Bibles, 
you want to open them to Matthew chapter 5, if you already have them open, that's great, because that's where we're going to head, and we're going to take this a little bit line by line. It says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. Now, I just want to remind you that he's redefining or defining however you want righteousness. He's trying to right some wrongs that, are, that they have been taught. If you know anything about what he's speaking about, you know that this is number six. This, uh, this commandment that he's speaking to is number six in the top ten, or the ten commandments. If you've never read them, they're found in Exodus. Uh, but we can easily say, oh, don't murder, right? Like, you shouldn't murder. Oh, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I can do that. But I think he's driving it much, much more than that. I think he wants us to, to, to prosper in the kingdom and flourish as a people. He's wanting us to be better than we think we can be in some moments, I think. He goes on, But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, You fool, will be in danger of fire of hell. I think we need to put a little definition around anger. Let's, let's define it. And this is probably simplistic for many of us, but I think simplistic helps us in this moment, and I think it feeds us in this area. Anger, simply this, a strong feeling when our will is crossed. When our will is crossed, right? When we don't get what we want, we become what? Angry. Now, the interesting thing is that scripture, we have to be honest with the idea of anger. Is, is anger always bad? Well, absolutely not. Scripture doesn't say that it's always bad, but it's good and bad. Jesus himself got angry. He got angry uh, when he overturned the table of the money changers or the cashiers at the temple, right? He flipped their tables out of anger. He was grieved and angry that the religious rulers did not want him to do good on the Sabbath, to heal somebody. Righteous anger. And there is a place for righteous anger that, that motivates us, that moves us to doing good things, not continuous bad things. That's the issue. That moves us and motivates us in that way. But anger is one of those things, it's like playing with fire. It's like playing fire. There's a good side of it, but if the, we play with it more and more, where we think that we have it, then it's going to burn us one of these days. In fact, many of us have been burnt multiple times over. Jesus states, and Matthew writes, anyone who is angry. So it's not the issue of whether you're not going to become angry or you're going to become angry. You are going to become angry, and you're going to have this strong feeling of emotion uh, for some of us, it's stronger than others that may rise up in us and move us. In Scripture, there are two words that describe anger. And we need to understand what Jesus is specifically speaking to in this moment. There are two words that mean anger in Scripture. The first one is thumos. Uh, it's that quick flare-up of anger. You ever been caught off in, in traffic? And, ah! Right? Right? That, and then... Hopefully, for you, it doesn't catalyst, you know, it's not a catalyst to road rage. But for many of us, it's just, we just get upset in the moment and we hopefully chill out. Or how about the child who spills 
their drink or food in their bedroom where you have requested that they not ever take food. And it's not the first time you've done it. You've told them multiple times, right? And you go, ah, you, you did. You've spilled it. Or you find dishes in the sink when you've repeatedly said, hey, the dishwasher's right there. One more move, one more piece of energy, uh, I guess, and you can put them in the right place. I mean, we have those moments. They tend to go and dissipate and disappear. They don't lead into, they can, but they don't often lead into potential relationship rifts, but I suppose they can. But there's another word, and the other word is the one that Jesus uses here, and it's orizo. This word has a meaning of, uh, of playing the situation over and over and over again in our mind. It is exactly what's on the screen. Whoever, I mean, this is how it could be rewritten if you were to rewrite scripture. Whoever is being angry or actively feeding angry is what Jesus is talking about. He's saying, look, you're you're nursing it, you're feeding it. You play it over and the, the roots aren't shallow anymore. They're pretty deep. It's pretty hard to pull up. And so Dale Bruner, scholar, gives us that. We tend to feed the beast instead of kill the beast. He goes on, Jesus does. He says, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka is answerable to the court. Now, Raka is literally a four-letter word in the Aramaic, just as it is here. And it has this meaning, this connotation of, you're like, you're you're empty in the head. It's a direct insult to the individual. It's not just this characterization. It's really saying somebody's idiotic or stupid when you look at them and say that to them. You've insulted who God has made them. Jesus is like, whoa. Bruce, A.B. Bruce, uh, says that this kind of language expresses more than just uh, anger on the surface, but really this, it leads us into, and we're going to get there in a moment, this idea of contempt for the individual. Anyone who says you fool will be in danger of the fires of hell. I mean, that's pretty strong words, isn't it? I mean, fool. How many of you have referred to somebody as a fool recently? Or mentally, you've looked at them and went, oh, you're, you're kind of an idiot or a moron. Well, if you did, you're spot on to where Jesus is trying to say, hey, you really shouldn't do that. Because mora is what the word, where we get the word in Greek is the word fool. And we see moron over and over again characterizing uh, large groups of people, uh, even in Scripture. So I want to show you uh, just three different places in Proverbs where uh, the word moron or fool is used. He says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Right? Those who despise it, he characterizes them, they're morons, they're fools. Fools show their annoyance at once, but the prudent overlook and insult, insult, right? Those people that are, you know, that react, some of us that do that, it's like, whoa, right? Even fools are thought wise if they keep silent of this one and discerning if they hold their tongues. These are, these are places in scripture where he says there's broad character, there's, there's this broad idea, but it's not a personal insult or a personal characterization insult. 
When you move into move to call somebody a fool to their face or even online, we'll get to that in a moment, you've moved from a general insult to a personal, personally and specifically shaming that person into, and, and their whole character. You've moved into really just assaulting them. Well, at one time in our culture, this would not be the case, meaning we, don't, we didn't have a shame and guilt culture. We are slowly and progressive, not slowly, we're fast moving into the shaming and guilt culture. Read something yesterday that said that actually our younger population of our American culture is good at this. They're just good at this. Jesus says if you call somebody a fool, you'll be in the danger of the fire of hell. So we, we have to kind of understand what he's saying about the fire of hell too. Not just the idea of calling someone a fool, but what does it create for yourself and for those around, him, around us? The word for fire in this passage of Scripture is Gehenna. Some of us may be familiar with it. Actually, Old Testament, it was also called Ben-Hinnom. There were slaughters in this location. And outside of Jerusalem, Gehenna was actually a literal place. It's the literal place where garbage especially in the New Testament around Jesus' time, was thrown, and it would burn continuously. There would just be this uh, constant flame. And what Jesus is trying to paint for us is not something in the future, but can I just say it's something for the now. He is painting for us something that we need to grasp and grab. It's not something that we'll get someday, but that's something maybe that we're living into so if you give in to danger, he says, you're in danger of living hell on earth, here and now. Now, for those of you concerned that I'm dismissing anything of the afterlife, I'm not attempting to do that at all. But Jesus has clearly put this in the present. It's a present aorist uh, tense. He's putting it in the right now moment. He's saying that you, when you live in this realm, you have the ability to live in the, the, the danger of hell and living in it of yourself. So let me, let's just walk into that idea of the fires of hell in this concept and in this specific point. If somebody is living in this way, they have disregard for others, they have disregard for God and what he says to them, their trajectory of their life is not heading to a place where they would be comfortable with Jesus for eternity. Does that make sense? They are living in a place that is creating for them hell now to, to <laughs> repel later. It's, it's just the continuation. And this is what Jesus is trying to say. Hey, whoa, wait a second. You know, if you create this scenario, if you live in this angry sense of living, if you're always kind of stewing under the surface and it comes out and you have this, this, this thought about people, your, your idea of your desire to live for the kingdom is, it, it may be a desire, but it's not coming to fruition in your life and your heart and where you want to live. You're not living for Jesus as, as king now, and so you'd be miserable living for Jesus forever anyway. People who end up in hell are not the kind of people who could or would enjoy Jesus' kingdom in the age to come. I think that's part of what Jesus is saying. It's like, whoa, if they disregard me now, what gives them a sense that they'll get rewarded in the end? They're living their hell on earth and moving to that separation from him. 
while I believe that there are implications, as I said, for life after death, there's a hell to be grasped and gained when you die. If you live apart from Jesus and apart from his rule, there is also a hell to be reaped in these days that we live in. It does seem kind of like a heavy pronouncement, though, doesn't it? I mean, how many of you called somebody an idiot? Uh, yeah, we, I mean, you know, you don't have to raise your hand. Thanks, Kevin. <laughs> or called somebody a fool. We were crossed in some way, and we've, we've just laid it, we laid, it, laid them out. We eviscerated them and, and thought we were doing good, right? But Jesus says, oh, no, no, that's not good. R.T. France says it this way, Jesus' pronouncement is thus that the ordinary insults may betray an attitude of contempt which God takes extremely seriously. The total unexpected conclusion in hellfire comes as a shocking jolt to the complacency of the hearer who might well have chuckled over the incongruous image of a person being tried for anger or conventional insult, only to be pulled up short by the saying, Saying's conclusion. Jesus is wanting to help us. He's wanting to heal us. He's wanting to have us move into this out of the motive of love. He wants us to live in that zone. And he also understands human nature. And what he is speaking to are, are the, just the, the layers of danger that we could be finding ourselves in when we live into this and think it's okay to have these seemingly nonchalant statements or even worse, thoughts that we're brewed on. I think Jesus is calling us to eliminate anger. He's calling us to eliminate anger. Can I go this far? Snide comments come from the same space and place in the heart that murdered us. You might go, whoa, wait a second. Really? Well, yeah, I think so. It has this progressive layer to it, if you're not careful. And when we come to this understanding that the layers of the onion peel back lead to that, we, we have a deeper need of Jesus. And on this Pentecost, can I just say we have a deeper need for the Holy Spirit to do just a radical work in our hearts so that we do transform that anger, that he transforms that anger into a place of love, much to our surprise. Why do I say that Jesus calls us to eliminate anger? Because, well, there are some other passages of Scripture that show us that he does. Ephesians chapter 4 says this, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as Christ forgave you. I want you to notice there's a progression to the anger, just as what Jesus has noted there is. You say, rocket to somebody. It has the ability to lead to murder. He, there's another passage of Scripture. It says, but now you must rid, also rid yourselves of all such things as, as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language from your lips. I know it's, it's kind of hip and cool to be able to swear, even as Christians these days. I mean, it's amazing. I've had multiple conversations with people who are like, oh, come on, it's just language. 
That's not what Jesus says, and that's not what the Bible says. My dear brothers and sisters, James 1 says this, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, because human anger does not produce righteousness that God desires. Anger is, is dangerous. Anger's, anger is a common thing that we all deal with in different forms and in different ways. Jesus simply knows the trajectory of anger and where it will take us. His call to us to eliminate anger from our very beings is a call to our health and wholeness, our integrity in him, our integrated wholeness in him. Jesus is such a doctor that he wants us to end the cycle of anger. He knows the human condition. And we could simply say to you, hey, you need to just try harder not to get angry. Yet, trying harder may get us there a little bit for a little bit of the time, but trying harder is not the, not the answer. He really knows that, and he wants us to eliminate it. But as you think about the idea of anger, maybe the question has come to mind, so how does it lead to murder? Well, let me go through... Uh, uh, a layered approach to you that potentially may resonate with you. He knows we get angry. We get crossed or thwarted in some way, right? Somebody doesn't do something the way we want it, we get angry. And then we have this potential to allow our ego to be wounded, right? We buy into it. We actually give into that, right? What we do in our minds is we go, we take it as an insult. Somebody gets angry, we take it as an insult, living out the Proverbs, and we go, how could she or he do this to me? And can I just tell you that oftentimes where anger sees itself, uh, it's not out in the workplace as much. We see it there, yep, I get it. But it, it really has its roots inside the home. Right, the repeated conversations and thoughts and thinking so we say, how, or, how could she or he do this to me? And that's so dangerous to walk into that, to allow ourselves to even think that. But we do, we all do. And then we play into the victim card. And this is where, this is where our culture really kind of has coddled us into this moment, I think, in a large respect. There are other things, there are other factors, but we tend to think of ourselves as being the victim in every scenario we can think of. And that is strongly encouraged by almost every venue in our culture. Now think about it. Politically, if you're, on the, you know, if you're the victim, no matter what side you're on, right? If you're, you know, what, wherever you stand, there, there's this idea, this, this move. And even those that are in power feel like they're in victim. I mean, it's just there. We're always good right? This is the way it works, and everybody else is always bad and always wrong. I was in a conversation this last week, and it was a refreshing conversation where somebody was dismantling some hurt in their lives, and when they dismantled a portion of their hurt, they went, that wasn't theirs, that was mine, and I just went, oh, that's a beautiful thing right there. It, it doesn't mean that they didn't hurt you, but when you can say, hey, I'm not, this is mine, this is what I contributed, that is a beautiful thing, but we don't often get there, and we don't let anybody else get us there, too. Can I tell you what we do? Is we saddle up to people who want to tell us the story we want to hear. 
I do. I want people to go, Steve, you're all right. You did it right. You did it beautiful. You know, nobody should. I'm like, oh. And that's dangerous. But that just feeds in quickly to this, this number four. We give ourselves to cont- contempt. Now, it may not be a word that you've used or heard a lot, but it's, it's thriving in our neighborhood. Let's just put it that way. The feeling that a person or thing is beneath consideration, worthless, or deserving scorn. It's when we start to think of ourselves better than others and self-righteousness starts to fill our veins, fill our souls and our hearts and who we are. The reality is we're not better than anybody else. We're all just messed up a little bit different than the other people. I mean, right? I mean, we're just messed up people. And what transpires, though, is we then start to twist things and start to see them through this lens that, that they're not as good. And we begin to then insult their character even more. We begin to highlight all their weaknesses and diminish their strengths. And we do the reverse with ourselves when we have the conversations in our heads. We do this. This is where contempt rises and sees its its ugly head. Now, one of the lighter ways of considering contempt is snobbery. Now, you might go, well, oh, come on. Well, let, let, me just, let me just pick on a few areas. Uh, you know, what teams we might choose. We lightheartedly kid with one another, but some of us aren't so kidding, right? So it, whether it's, oh, I was in a conversation about Ohio State U of M with somebody recently, right? Now, it wasn't in snobbery, but I went, oh, yeah, people really get angry about this stuff. So much that one of my friends, who was a U of M fan, was in Ohio, and uh, the, the thing that he can only surmise, he was at a, uh, a restaurant, this was long, many years ago, and he found a shake that was thrown at his window. Because, and probably because he had a U of M, U of M uh, sticker or license plate, I don't know what it was. That's all he could surmise, right? We think, oh, that can't be. Oh, can it not? I mean, I ask, where we live or don't live? Oh, you live on that side, right? What school we attend or don't attend? I mean, those are just, we, those are light, really, those are lighthearted, but they feed that whole thing. And for some of us, uh, some of us, we hear what kind of coffee you drink and we go, really? <laughs> yeah, there you go. See, it lives in all these corners. That's my point. And we go, oh, wait a second, what am I doing? What am I participating in? What am I, give, what am I feeding, right? And then it quickly moves into this, this idea. We engage in word violence. We engage in word violence. Verbally, we give snarky comments. We put people down. And we do it with, not with only with our voices, but we have become really, really good at using social media. I mean, people can hurt through words that are spoken or written, doesn't really matter, right? And these are places that just violence is played out. And we, we go so far as, actually, I saw this meme the other day. I was thinking about, should I or should I not? I'm going to. I saw this meme the other day where uh, an eagle was pooping on uh, Joe Biden. Now, some of you might think that's just really funny. I don't. 
I think it buys in and sells into this whole idea that we have the ability to, to insult even the position that we honor. We may not like, the, like his political choice, uh, you know, his ideologies, but again, that's engaging in a little different kinds of word violence that's just, personally, I think is unacceptable. As followers of Jesus, we need to see ourselves away from that as much as possible. Honor, uh, honor the position and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sure this is, uh, this, is, this is probably the truth. If you were to know him outside of politics or anybody in an po- opposite po- political view, whether it's Republican, Democrat, or Libertarian, and you didn't know what they were, who they were, but you were to sit down and have a meal, you'd probably enjoy yourself. Think about it. You probably would because you could talk. And we wonder where it kind of comes in and where it sees it, why our culture is seen that way. And when we do that, what happens is we then create this hell on earth for ourselves that we live in and those around us. Because we're, at this point, we're seething. Uh, anger comes out at, at the most, we don't, we're not even in control of it anymore. It comes out in places we don't know and we can't see. And we create this hell on earth for ourselves in, our, in the way we live, in the way we move. And then, can I just say, uh, it moves in potentially to this idea of domestic abuse and violence and murder. I, I think that may be a, a way that it progresses for us. You may have some others that you want to put in there, but I think Jesus wants us to, to eliminate this vicious, vicious cycle within who we are. He wants us to become people who live out of this motive of love, that, powered by the Holy Spirit. But this is what we have to come to. So how do we deal with this? Great question. Jesus answers it, I don't. He says this in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 through 24. He says, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar and go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Now, uh, there was only one altar in Uh, at all in this time, and it was in Jerusalem. There in Galilee, he's in Jerusalem. Now think about the distance. You know, you've come and offered your gift, but then you remember that your, your neighbor has, you have something against your neighbor. He's saying, lay your gift at the altar. Leave it. Go take care of it. I think Jesus is calling us to an immediate, responsive act when we notice or remember or have this understanding that there's something we have that is in, that's going on between us and another person, we need to take care of those things as quickly as possible. He goes on, settle matters quickly, verse 25, with your adversary who is taking you to court, do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown in prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. As you're walking to court, make every available possibility to cut a deal. I mean, that's what he's telling you. Look, settle this matter before you get to court, because when you get to court, you're not just going to court and having to pay a fine. In this case, you're going to court, and more likely you're going to what they considered, and we've had around not so far in our distant history, not here maybe, but in others, a debtor prison. 
where you're going to wait and languish there until you can't pay it. So cut a deal. Figure out how you can reconcile this situation. Well, so what is Jesus asking us to do? He's saying this. Jesus is asking us to act immediately toward reconciliation and peace to eliminate anger and live in love. The longer we let anger sit, it has deep roots into us. And the harder it is to pull it out. Some of us know this, right? We've lived through it. Maybe all of us have in some way. There's something that has rooted itself deep within us and we realize, oh, this is going to take a long time because I didn't deal with it in the moment I needed to deal with it. I didn't speak to the right person about it. Jesus is saying that we need to act immediately. Reconcile the situation. Figure out how to find a peace. There's tons of strategies. That's not what we're into this morning to do that. But we need to eliminate anger. That's one of the ways we eliminate anger anger from our lives. Back to John, beginning of the message. John tells us in 1 John 4, 11 and 12, he says this, Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. Jesus is calling us to live Uh, as some of us have come to understand in uh, the terminology in upside-down kingdom, the powerful win, right? The people who can manipulate and hold the cards, they win. And Jesus is saying, no, no, I, I hold the cards. In this realm, they don't even hold the cards. You do. Love always wins, always wins the right place and the right time. So if there is an issue between you and another, can I just encourage you to step into it and begin to work toward reconciliation, to restoration, towards peace, and yes, even towards unity. Today is Pentecost. Again, it's the day that the Holy Spirit fell on Jesus' disciples and everybody in that room in a dramatic fashion, so much of a dramatic fashion that people wondered whether they were drunk. As a follower of Jesus, I hunger for that same just dramatic drop of the Holy Spirit, that indwelling of the Holy Spirit. But I do know this in my life, I can't speak for yours, but I think it would be similar. One of the things that, one of the dams that stopped the flow of the Holy Spirit quicker than anything is my unwillingness to deal with with my anger or my relationships. So maybe you're here this morning and you're like, whoa, it's, everybody's angry out there. But you've not been feeling the fresh move of the Spirit in your life. Can I ask you just to, with the Holy Spirit, to do an internal inventory? Just ask Him, Lord, is there anybody Is there anybody that that I haven't tried to seek out forgiveness, reconciliation, restoration with? And listen. Listen for his response. It may not be the case. But on this day, I think he's asking us to look deep, to eliminate the anger in our, our lives and walk into the motive of love. Let's pray.
Father, we know how you love. You love those who did not love you back by giving your son as a sacrifice. To demonstrate what love really is. It's a love that goes goes long and wide and deep to redeem those who are far from you. So, Father, as we think about Jesus' words of eliminating anger out of our lives, Lord, would, would you lead us? Would you lead us into your presence? Explore our hearts. Explore our souls. Help us to grasp the seriousness of Jesus' words. Help us to live into love in a greater way. Bring community around us that, Father, will help us to become more and more like you. Some of you have been attempting to deal with your anger more on your own. Your life wouldn't be characterized as somebody who is following Jesus. And the incredible thing on this day that we are gathered, we celebrate Pentecost, where there's this deposit of the Holy Spirit that Jesus gave to us, not only as a counsel, not only as a guide, but a a power to penetrate those strongholds of our hearts and our lives so that we can live for him. So if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning and you want this power to be able to live and flourish in God's greater design. Would you pray this prayer with me this morning? Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercy, grace, and love found in and through Jesus. Save me and forgive me for my sins. I give you my life and choose to follow, love, and live for you. In the powerful name of Jesus, amen. Father, we're grateful for the gift of your Holy Spirit on this day, liberating us, loving us. Amen.